podcasting worldwide via the Internet from Lakeland, Florida, this is Whitfield Radio's True Believer Program. And now, here is your host, the founder and president of Whitfield Theological Seminary and senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Lakeland, Florida, Dr. Kenneth G. Talbot. Welcome to our first podcast of Calvinism Today. This show is dedicated to the preservation of historic Calvinistic theology in our churches. We shall also deal with misconceptions of Calvinism and the continual drifting of those who call themselves Calvinists, but in reality are not Calvinistic at all. My co-host is Dr. Matthew McMahon, president of A Puritan's Mind. A Puritan's Mind is a website dedicated to retaining the teachings of the Reformed and Puritan theologies. Dr. Van also is a minister in the Reformed Presbyterian Church General Assembly. Welcome, Dr. Matt, and thank you for your participation as a host on our show. Well, thank you, Dr. Talbot. Appreciate being here. Dr. Matt, why don't you give us an overview of your website, A Puritan's Mind? Well, A Puritan's Mind, which is at www.apuritansmind.com, all spelled out, uh, began in order to introduce the world through the Internet about my favorite Puritans. Uh, At the time, there just wasn't anything like that on the Internet. And that grew over the years to be a hub for the doctrines of grace, for covenant theology, and the 1647 Westminster Standards. Uh, Currently, it's grown to be thousands of pages and houses hundreds of works on Reformed theology, the Reformation, and the writers of that period, uh, and has a very extensive section on the Puritans, including one of the largest Internet sites on Jonathan Edwards. Uh, As a matter of fact, we've just launched two new sections of the site for this upcoming year on Richard Sibbs and Jeremiah Burroughs, and we're currently working on uh, a whole section dedicated to Thomas Manton. So the site has naturally progressed also to publishing Puritan works in book form that are out of print and using the vehicle of hardback and electronic books. So we just launched uh, www.puritanshop.com to do just that. And uh, one of our most recent works is publishing the 1647 Westminster Standards in hardback and ebook form. But the idea being is that we're housing all of these, uh, some of them very difficult to get your hands on works, both out of Puritan's mind and through the Puritan shop to bring the Puritans into our age, knowing that they are so rich in biblical content. Dr. Matt, why don't you quickly give those sites again for our listeners so sure, they can the, know how to get there. The main site is A Puritan's Mind. That's www.apuritansmind.com, all spelled out. And the shop is at www.puritanshop.com. Thank you, Dr. Matt. Our producer today is Dr. Bill Sullivan. How are you doing today, Dr. Bill? Oh, I'm doing uh, well, and I'm looking very forward to the discussion you're going to have today. We have... Uh, two experts on Calvinism, so we should uh, be able to learn a lot. Um, I didn't know there was anybody else joining us, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) Our first show is entitled Conflicts and Confrontation in Theology, Striving 
for doctrinal purity. You know, the history of the Christian church is filled with theological confrontations, especially over doctrine, as well as practice. Theological confrontation, though, is not always bad for the church. The Apostle Paul himself wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, part B and 19, I hear that there are divisions among you, for there must be factions among you in order to show which of you have God's approval. Dr. Matt, if the church fathers had not examined, challenged, and confronted every doctrine introduced to the church, the church would have been riddled with heretical dogma. What's your thoughts on the importance and confrontation and conflict in the church? Well, the scripture says, Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar, in Proverbs 30 and verse 6. And in looking at wanting to hold to doctrinal purity, Pascal says that the quickest way to prevent heresy is to teach all truths, and the most certain way of refuting it is to expose them all. So it's exceedingly important to strike the head on anything that would attempt to damage the foundation of the church, which is the truth of God found in the scripture. Uh, Heresy generally is taken for some notorious, false, and perverse opinion that's opposing and subverting the faith that's once delivered to the saints, as Jude says, or overthrowing the form of wholesome words, as Paul says. So at no point can the church ever sit idly by while false doctrine attempts to subvert the faith delivered. If the faith gets subverted, then there's no gospel and no church. So without the church fathers confronting every doctrine introduced to the church and challenging to be sure that these things were pure, we would have some subversion going on. So it's exceedingly important. Dr. Matt, the Westminster Divines taught that when ministers preach, they need to emphasize, spend their time on doctrinal presentation in their preaching in order to ensure the purity of the church and its practice as well. When they talked about refuting the doctrine, especially from the pulpit, they did not believe one should spend a lot of time on that. They needed to identify it uh, for what it was, uh, be able to expose its teaching, but then move on and teach what is right. Why did they put that kind of an emphasis on the purity of preaching the truth versus spending a lot of time in dealing and pointing out with heretical problems? Well, because if you know the truth, then you're going to know what the error is if you ever come into contact with it. So it was better to take the church and prevent, or what we would call preventative church discipline, in preaching the word and teaching the word and catechizing people about the word in order to arm them well against anything that might attempt to subvert them. Do you think they also, perhaps in the back of their mind, felt that if we spend too much time on exposing heresy, that we will draw people's attention to the heresy itself? And people who maybe have not had the opportunity to have sat long under a strong, orthodox, reformed, evangelical-type minister who maybe haven't had many years in the study of Scripture and the training and the catechisms and the confession that they might be pulled or wooed, as it was, over to the heretical teaching, and as a result, such an overexposure 
would do more damage that way than just preaching the truth and simply hitting on it and moving on as if it had no real importance within the church except to be rejected and not to be uh, spend time with uh, the the average Christian spending time with it uh, well, and, and going over it. Yes, yeah, certainly. And even in the way that uh, Paul exhorts Timothy in the pastoral epistles, i.e. the pastoral epistles to the preachers of the church, that have to take heed to their life and to their doctrine, that need to be able to silence the gainsayer and so forth. It's the minister and theologian's job to be able to deal with those things. Uh, it is not the, uh, if I could say it this way, the direct commission of every person in the church to, to deal with heresy in that way, although we are to be able to give a reason for the faith that lies within us. That's different than having to theologically handle uh, Sometimes a very intricate and difficult theological position that may be an error that we have to unwind and fix. So, yes to that very much so. Well, let's look at some of these doctrines that were understood as essential doctrines to the Christian faith as it laid the foundation toward what we eventually call Calvinistic theology. As Calvin himself goes back and the model being of the church at the time of the Reformation, apostolic simplicity, looking at the simple, plain teachings of the gospel in the early apostolic uh, practices, as well as their church worship services and, and doctrinal teachings, over against what eventually became highly perverted as a result of Roman Catholic theology. It's important, I think, that we consider all of these theological positions carefully in light of Holy Scripture, the standard of any theological issue, unequivocal for Protestant reformers, is sola scriptura, the scripture alone. It is the Bible which must be the final judge in all matters of faith, life, and practice. Unless a standard is maintained, though, the church will be led astray by every wind of doctrine. Dr. Matt, what are your thoughts on that subject, of, of the importance that that foundation be laid in order to keep the church from drifting, and do you see that drift in the church today? Well, the scriptures charge sin, perniciousness, and damnation upon those who subvert the faith of the Christian in the church. Paul even reckons them among those works of the flesh which shut people out of the kingdom of God, which is in Galatians 5, 20 and 21. Uh, the apostle Peter calls them pernicious and damnable, and such as bring swift destruction, and speaking uh, of the authors of them, he says that their damnation slumbers not in Second Peter 2, 1 and 3. So truth or the standard of the truth found in the Bible is, as it were, the, the pen or the clasp or the knot that ties it all together. And a church is never more close to dying than when it gives up the truth. So maintaining the standard of truth allows the church to rest upon what sustains her or the food that she has need of. Um, you know, Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, you know, quoting Deuteronomy. So the church must rely on the word of God for its strength and for its being, without which it would have neither. So every heretical opinion uh, either buys a soul or stabs a soul. It stabs the soul of him who maintains it, and it still treads on it. Uh, to murder even more souls because it becomes a, a gangrenous kind of problem. Uh, heresy actually turns the glory of God into a lie and 
today when we don't have the foundations of the scripture uh, set in terms of the way that the church receives them and understands them with so much waywardness going on doctrinally today, uh, changing the once held foundational truths of the Bible into three poems and a prayer from most of the pulpits that preach on Sunday mornings. That's not hard to understand why many in the church today don't have a strong grasp of the scriptures themselves, trust their pastor to tell them things about matters of faith, life, and practice, and don't really have a doctrinal standard that's maintained. You've brought up a thought. There are many heresies that the church has to confront, but a lot of times you'll find people who are going after a heresy. Uh, I mean, they're literally heresy hunters. They're looking for that particular heresy, but they seem to ignore other heretical teachings, and even many of them are participating in such heretical teachings and practices, but they feel that because some of their theology is, quote, correct, let's say, evangelical-based, perhaps even leaning toward Reformed theology, yet deny other aspects of that whole system of theology. How important is it to be no respecter toward heresies, that we ought to confront all heresies? Especially, for example, you and I as ministers of the gospel, we don't get, we're not given options. We have to confront all, but we can't spend all of our time on them. That would be an impossibility. But should not people be careful to develop in their life a better, full-orbed understanding of the teaching of Scripture, that they don't fall prey into all these other teachings, and then they're focused only on one thing, when in reality they themselves are in violation of the Word of God. Well, certainly. Uh, even Marcion, who was a heretic uh, in the early church, you know, he took only the Gospel of Luke and of Acts, and... That didn't mean that what he believed in the Gospel of Luke or in Acts was wrong. It did mean that he was heretical and rejecting all of the Pauline epistles and the other apostles and so forth. So somebody can still hold a, to a glimmer of truth and still be, you know, gigantically wrong in a number of other ways that, uh, we always have to make sure that we have a set standard that we adhere to that's universally received and accepted, as Jude says, the faith that's once delivered to the saints, which is the whole body of doctrine that God has given us in the scripture. So we don't get to pick and choose just because we may be in some kind of limelight by exposing one heresy or another because it happens to pass our way or, or might be in our church. Uh, a lot of teachers today seem to deal with heresy in that way. Uh, denying some of the foundation truths of the Bible, and yet at the same time seeing one or two things that they think are heretical because it casts more of uh, the limelight on their ministry in some way. Um, rather, we ought to take, just as the early church fathers took, every single thing into examination to make sure that there was nothing subverting the faith in any way. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. That, I think, is so important. Uh, it's hard to give credibility to someone who's criticizing a heresy when they themselves are involved in both believing and practicing a heresy. I don't understand that mentality. 
when our commission is to believe the whole truth of Scripture and to implement it and practice it in our life, faith, and, and, and everything that we do. Well, let me move on. We've talked about sola scripture, the scripture alone, but fundamental to that is the interpretation of the Bible. The fundamental principle of biblical interpretation we hold, especially in Reformed theology and in Protestantism in general, is that scripture ought to interpret scripture. This was Luther's analogy of faith. That is, scripture is its own best interpreter. Dr. Matt, what's your thoughts on that? Well... The difficulty of some texts in Scripture does not suggest uh, lots of different multiple intentions that God has, but uh, there might be, you know, certain ambiguity in the words to our mind, but that's just the weakness of our understanding. Uh, although words can, in the abstract, mean many things, in any concrete instance, they can be employed by the Holy Spirit in one of those meanings, and that can be found out by examining the context and by the analogy of faith, that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture will give a self-attestation of what it's saying. So the analogy of faith, uh, that was a key principle of interpretation taught by the Reformers, as you mentioned, Luther, uh, Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, that principle is also uh, stated in the Westminster Confession in chapter 1, uh, section 9, where it says that the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold, but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So if there's something unclear to you in one place, in another place, that clarity can be found to make the harmonious parts consistent. So in essence, so our listeners gather what's being said here, one would take and study a particular issue and look throughout the Scripture to see where it deals with that particular subject matter. Where the passages are clear, we formulate somewhat of a doctrinal understanding of what is being uh, taught within the, the structure of the Scripture. But then we may find places that seems to be contradictory to it. It's not really a contradiction at all. It's simply the Scripture in that section may not be understood clearly as to its intent, as to its context. So one would take that passage that does not seem as clear back and review it in light of the totality of the other passages that are more clear that speak directly to that issue. Correct. And that's actually for, unfortunately in our day, for many Christians, difficult. Because what that means is that every Christian needs to be able to comprehensively have some idea of all the different books of the Bible and a little bit of what they teach. If they don't have that, it's very easy for them to be able to go off in one section of Scripture or one portion of Scripture and think that it teaches one thing when they're not even familiar with another. I had a conversation just the other day of somebody who spent a lot of time in Proverbs and Psalms, but almost no time whatsoever in the Minor Prophets. And that can be a very dangerous thing when you're dealing with understanding what God says in his word to us. Absolutely. Let's move on. Creedal confessional theology. You know, the Reformed practice of creedal or confessional theology 
has come under attack from various individuals throughout the history of the church, along with some denominations. These individuals have been unwilling to commit themselves to a written standard based upon the teaching of Scripture. Uh, They fail to see that biblically creeds actually contend for the truth of God as he has revealed himself in the Scripture. Dr. Matt, it seems that our churches are adrift in mucky waters of shifting doctrine and empty cliches today. And as a result of that, the church doesn't have a clear sound or a clear call to the truth of what the Scripture is. Why don't you give me some ideas on what you're thinking when we deal with this aspect of creedal and confessional theology and its importance? Well, mucky waters are a result of not having tradition. And we're not talking about, uh, when I say tradition, I'm not talking about the tradition of Tevye's Fiddler on the Roof, tradition for the sake of tradition. Um, Rather, I like to call it uh, theological traditionalism. And theological traditionalism is defined in a couple of ways. It's defined erroneously by those against its biblical design, and it's defined correctly by those who recognize the Spirit's providential guidance of historical orthodoxy through the generations of the church since its inception. So, erroneously, some theologians attempt to define some kind of traditionalism while simultaneously and unknowingly adhering to the false misconceptions of the what I call the me and my Bible hermeneutic. And this teaches <laughs> that every individual Christian has the right and ability to interpret Scripture based on the misconceived presupposition that the Scriptures are perfectly clear and that all parts are equally plain. So that's theological traditionalism where it's often seen negatively because they like to go against it, thinking that all you need is your Bible, and if you have your Bible, you'll be okay, so to speak. Uh, That's dangerous even to talk about it in that way because everyone relies on private interpretation, as I'll talk about in a second. But in practicality, uh, as one dispensationalist stated in a conversation, Uh, It is no good for Presbyterians to wave the Westminster Confession of Faith in front of Baptists expecting them to bow down in front of it. If you can't convince (laughs) us by the scriptures, then you won't convince us at all. And your confession carries no more weight than its adherence that the Bible gives it. Now, that's true to a certain extent in the sense that there are rights that people should not simply be waving the Westminster Confession of Faith in front of anyone for any reason. Rather, uh, the confession of faith, as we'll talk about in a second, is really an expression of what uh, thousands, millions uh, throughout church history have said, this is where our theological traditions stand. Um, Theological traditionalism stands light years apart from such a caricature seen in those who think we wave a confession or creed at them. Uh, Theological traditionalism doesn't teach that the individual Christian cannot interpret the scriptures with any degree of accuracy or certainty since his corrupt nature is naturally drawn toward error. Uh, But that's both a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian to test what's true and to have an answer for everyone who asks of him. First Thessalonians tells us that, Colossians tells us that, Second Timothy tells us that. But that's really an oversimplification 
of appealing to the wickedness of man and a denial of his new nature and his new mind in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us that we have this new mind that's being renewed. So theological traditionalism does teach that a single individual's interpretation of Scripture must either be confined by or give way to the consensus of a multitude of individuals, but not without first engaging in private interpretation, because it's, it's logically impossible to confirm or deny one's theological idea without having an idea based on private interpretation. So even uh, Roman Catholics, even the Pope, it's impossible for him to speak ex cathedra from the throne and uh, in matters of faith and practice uh, without having an appeal first to some kind of authority to private interpretation of what he understands the scripture to say. So Dr. Roman Ca- you know, Roman Catholics really are first Protestants in that regard, since they must of necessity privately interpret the scriptures before the Pope can decree a public proclamation on a given subject. So private interpretation is very important. Let me ask you this. Um, when you say tradition or theological tradition, we're not talking about extra biblical tradition. We're talking about traditions that have been passed on and recorded in Scripture, including there are creedal statements within Scripture itself. You'll see the Apostle Paul make these. Sometimes they're in a benediction. Sometimes they're in other areas. But we're talking about biblical tradition. Traditions that are based upon the teaching of Scripture. We're not talking about extra-biblical tradition. Traditions that are established by the church. The church uh, with no authority, with nothing from the Scripture to support uh, uh, teaching or practice. Those are not the traditions, as we see in Rome. Rome has many of those traditions, right. uh, which is the easiest to contrast with. But we're talking about, for the sake of our listener understanding this, we're talking about traditions that Paul himself talks about. The traditions we have given to you, the church, where they have laid out these principles and have instructed them in how to carry them out. And creedalism is one aspect of that. We are to have sound doctrine, Paul says to Timothy, that we're to maintain that doctrine and keep it pure in all that we seek to do and understand within that relationship. And when we do that uh, in, in that way, it's not a, a tradition that's made of men, but a tradition that's based on the authority of Scripture. Which right, means right. that our creedal theology, while it is not uh, inerrant or infallible, it is authoritative where it represents the truth of God's Word. But a lot right, of people I mean, do not understand that concept of it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I was saying it's not like traditional Natevia would have said, just tradition for the sake of tradition. Theological traditionalism doesn't make a direct appeal to a special golden age in church history, um, oftentimes that people think extended from the time of the Reformation through British Puritanism, you know, characterized by this unrivaled spiritual and intellectual giftedness. Rather, it, it does make a direct appeal to proper biblical exegesis in any given age and every confessional stance that aligns itself with a proper biblical interpretation. 
appeal is often made to the Reformation, and appeal is often made to Westminster and the Westminster Standards, uh, but that appeal is really made in submission to the Holy Spirit's providence in giving certain men to the church as pastors and teachers that have correctly defined Orthodox Christianity and built upon the Orthodox standards since the time of Christ and the Apostles. Um, the early church didn't teach anything that was different than what we're going to find in Westminster or anything that we're going to find in the Reformation, although they might have been a little bit more clear later on than in the former times. It's the same information. So, you know, greater, the, yeah, greater specificity okay. to the doctrine. Exactly. But it doesn't change the essence of the doctrine. Correct, correct. So to deny following after the teachings of men in that regard, not as men themselves, as if these men are supposed to be venerated or something, uh, really, though, to deny following orthodox teaching, that would simply be uh, a sin against the providential gifts of the Holy Spirit to his church. So theological traditionalism doesn't teach that all Christians are bound by the confession of the golden years or something like that. Really, it should be accepted by every Christian uh, that error of any kind should be rejected and the truth should always be received. And so, the history of that doctrine is based not on the fact that the church says it is Rome. We have to believe this because Rome says this is the this is the official position of the church. We have accepted that on the basis of that continually, generation through generation, has exegetically looked at the passages of Scripture and continually come back and said that our study of the Scripture has not changed in its interpretation with right. those who have gone before us. We are constantly reaffirming that. Thus, when they make those pronunciations, uh, no different than when a minister stands up and preaches the Word of God, no different than... When a Christian says to another Christian in a casual conversation in a cafe, uh, you know, I, I was studying the scripture last night in this text and I realized that all those statements that explain the scripture are in reality creedal statements. Mm. That's what we're seeing happen. That's what we have here. We have in our creed an expression of the body of truth, what we call the word of God. Now, there's many words in the Bible. But all those words give us propositions. Those propositions, when brought together, embody a whole truth, which we refer to as the word. Not the words. We call it the word. Because it is one truth, systematically revealed and understood to us through the confession, as we set it out from the word of God, from those words as they are propositionally constructed. Thus, when you have these insidious, insidious claims, for example, we have no creed but Christ, or we have no creed but the Bible, it, it literally makes no sense. Nor should we leave out those who claim that sola scriptura precedes the use of creeds and confessions. As Keith Matheson wrote in his book on sola scriptura, which was one of our doctrinal dissertations, he pointed out that mentality is really solo. Scripture, like you said, is an existentialistic approach to the teaching of Scripture that I and my Bible alone are only the ones responsible for whatever I decide I want to believe. And that was mm. never the purpose of the Bible given to Christ church. Mm. It was given to us as a church to understand. Now, clearly we realize in the history of the church, it's fractured. We don't have the churches in the time of the apostles and the apostolic fathers where you have one church and all these councils would get together. 
Christendom has split. But that does not take away from the tradition that they continued with the apostles in their teaching when they had these councils that we continue in developing and uh, giving greater clarity and specificity to our own confessions to maintain the teaching of that truth. Do you not see that as, as really important? Because what we're running into is people who are basically, when they say we have no creed or confession, it just simply means we have no belief at all. Such a declaration means that you have no established, settled teaching on the Scripture. I don't see how anyone could preach, teach, share the gospel, do anything. If they're going to truly maintain no creeds whatsoever, that would have to apply across the board into everything. And anyone who would get up and say, the Scripture says, if they say no creeds but Christ, they have to stop, sit down, and shut up. The only thing you could literally and logically do in a church is just get up and read a passage, close your Bible, sit down. At home, open up your Bible, read a passage, close it. In your personal devotions, open up the Bible, read a text, close it. Form no thoughts. Don't even think about it. Because even thinking about it, even if it's not spoken or written, you're creating creeds because you're saying, I believe this text means this. Mm. Well, you know, if you find preachers or theologians or people who make claims like that, or if you talk like that, uh, in my opinion, they're simply attempting to hold on to their office and position and the people who follow them. Uh, because they land on a point or points that rub people maybe the wrong way, because those people are uneducated about those points. If they do that, they lose tithers, and that can be really detrimental for their church, especially if they have Starbucks in the lobby. Uh, you know, and, and it's often remarked that creeds shouldn't be held to, they shouldn't be heeded, that they're not authoritative, that they're not inspired by God. Uh, however, the, the history of the church and the creedal formularies uh, that, that were made, they were never thought to be inspired in the first place. They just define and express cogently what is inspired and what should be believed based on what the Bible teaches. I, I have this little quote here that I'd just like to read um, from sure. William Hetherington, who, you know, quite a while ago uh, wrote this, having gone over much of the same problems in dealing with the Westminster Confession in his day. He says this, Thus, a confession of faith is not the very voice of divine truth, but the echo of that voice from souls that have heard its utterance, felt its power, and are entering to its call. And since she has been instituted for the purpose of teaching God's truth to an erring world, her duty to the world requires that she should leave it in no doubt respecting the manner in which she understands the message which she has to deliver. And I think that's very, very important because I think that the people who throw away or, or don't have settled teachings about Scripture, which is almost, that's just an oxymoron in and of itself, what is it that they're teaching people? Well, if you watch some of the stuff that's on television today or see any of those kinds of services, uh, you know, they're, they're teaching things that make people feel good. Uh, their, their churches are ginormous, housing uh, stadiums and droves of people. If you have, uh, you know, a preacher, as Job says, which is one in a thousand, you know, gather up a thousand preachers today and you have one in there that's a, really a preacher, really somebody who can show a man his sin. And if you let him loose in preaching uh, what the scripture teaches, those places would empty out very quickly and you would be left with very few. 
because those people are going to land on points that rub people the wrong way. The gospel is good news, but it's good news that comes after the bad news where, you know, we're, we're talking about Calvinism today, uh, just the idea of depravity and how that teaching is predominantly taught all through the Bible. Uh, people don't like to land on places like that because once you start getting into the depravity of man and of sin, uh, they'll want to throw you out of the church. People don't like to hear about things like that, and they get rubbed the wrong way. And then they lose their tithers in that church, and that's where things start to uh, go downhill. And I've seen firsthand where people have specifically not touched on accepted Christian truths through the history of the church simply because they don't want to deal with that particular problem. Uh, even people who should be holding to their creed or confession. You know, if we teach that section of the confession or we teach that section of scripture, that's going to rub people the wrong way. Uh, a lot of times people just want to have some kind of spiritual experience, and so they move away from holding to the specificness of a creed uh, that says something very specific and declares something true, which is what happens every time you ask somebody what they believe about Jesus, and they open their mouth and they start to tell you something. That's a belief. But when they, lots of times people go to church, they hear something fluffy or easy uh, or satisfying or something nice about uh, a Thanksgiving sermon, for example, which we just uh, came through this new, this new holiday for Thanksgiving. I'm sure there are all sorts of things about uh, giving thanks in the sense of things that God has given us. Uh, dealing with things that make us spirit, feel spiritually warm and fuzzy are where, really where the definition of what, uh, at least in America, in American preaching today has taken that turn. If you make people feel good and they come to the service and they, you hear a little bit of the Bible, maybe add that in somewhere along the line, talk about a story or two, uh, that makes people feel better. But having something that is a declaration or a creed or a confession that translates into a specific stance on something, mm -hmm. that, can, that can get people into a very difficult area to be in, especially when they have to come to grips with some of the issues that that creed or confession or, in this sense, the Bible teaches us on those things. Dr. Bill, you had a question. Yeah, Dr. Matt, I was just thinking of a number of things that we're faced with today. You mentioned uh, a person has a spiritual experience, and so that takes precedence in their way of thinking over uh, the clear teaching of Scripture, perhaps. Or how about open theism, oneness, Pentecostalism? dispensationalism, even Mormonism and things like that. Uh, these things, uh, where do they stand in their relationship, for example, to the uh, traditional uh, theological traditionalism that you were talking about earlier? Have they totally disregarded that uh, and uh, did not stand on the shoulders of those who went before them? Most of the time that you deal with things like that, open theism, some kind of new liberation theology, uh, some kind of social gospel. When, you're, when you look at the progression uh, in dealing with church history or historical theology, you're looking at, many times, a new way of 
teaching something that may be new or fanciful or faddish or nostalgic coming in, a, in inside of a certain light. And so when people teach something like open theism, really when you pick that apart, it's not new, but it, but it was new in somebody's paper. And when you have something new like that, or some kind of new theological view or new theological idea, uh, you know, yeah, people get known as a result of new theological ideas and new twists in theology or a new way of dealing with something, uh, theologically speaking, that, you know, people will like. A lot of times, you know, just to use open theism as an example, uh, practically speaking, there's not going to be many people in the church that are going to be able to sit down and have a conversation with you on Clark Pinnock's open theism. Uh, but some practical stuff uh, coming out of open theism is going to affect people in the pew. You know, uh, God changes. God is able to be just as uh, compassionate to you because he goes through much of the same thing with his church and things of that nature that they're, they're trying to take some new kind of spin and make it relatable to people. Uh, and obviously you see when people, you know, take new ideas into mainline theology uh, or even outside on the borders of mainline theology or around in liberal theology, it gets them noticed in some way or they get pat on the back because they have a new theological idea. But they have they're abandoning completely theological traditionalism in every way because to hold in some kind of fashion to a creed or confession would mean that you don't have any new ideas. And if you don't have new ideas or a new angle in something, then you might not get that tenure that you're looking for in the college that you're teaching in. And you know, that can also be problematic. You know, Dr. Matt, it reminds me when Charles Hodge retired. They said, after 40 years of being a professor, what are you most proud of? And he said that we came up with nothing new. Exactly. Nothing right. new. Nothing novel. We just were faithful to the teaching of our creedal standards as we believe they express the teaching of the Word of God. When we talk about that authority, the authority is not that the creed is authoritative in and of itself, but rather it is a derived authority. It is authority from the Word of God. Listen to A. a. Hodge, Charles' son. He states, and let me just quote this quite at length, it is asserted in the first chapter of this confession, referring to the Westminster Confession, and vindicated in this exposition that the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, having been given by inspiration of God, are for man in his present state and only and all the all-sufficient rule of faith and practice. All that man is to believe concerning God and the entire duty which God requires of men are revealed therein and are to be believed and obeyed because contained therein is the word of God, the divine word. This divine word, therefore, is the only standard of doctrine which has intrinsic authority binding the conscience of men. And all other standards are of value or authority only in proportion as they teach what the scripture teaches. Every student of the Bible must do this and 
all make it obvious that they do it by the terms they use in their prayers and religious discourses, whether they admit or deny the propriety of human creeds and confessions. If they refuse the assistance afforded by the statements of doctrine slowly elaborated and defined by the church, they must make out their own creed by their own unaided wisdom. The real question is not, as often pretended, between the word of God and the creed of man, but between the tried and proven faith of the collected body of God's people and the private judgment and the unassisted wisdom of the repudiator of creeds. It must be remembered, however, that the matter of these creeds and confession binds the conscience of men only so far as it is purely scriptural. And because it is so, and as to the form in which that matter is stated, they bind those only who have voluntarily subscribed to the confession and because of that subscription. Dr. Matt, we cannot attach the authority of belief to church, to the church history. It would be no different in our practices if we were doing that than the Roman Catholic Church. Mm. How important is it for us to recognize the Scripture in its given authority to that confession? In other words, because it's derived from our study of Scripture, as close as we can make it, with the understanding that if someone can come along and show us from the Scripture something that we have misinterpreted, we are more than willing to change those creeds because we don't believe they're inspired or infallible. But that authority must always be understood as a derived authority. It's not an authority based upon some self-authenticating human ability, but rather simply because God's Word teaches, and then we set forth a systematic statement of what that Word teaches. That expression is the body of truth. And we say the reason why the authority is there is because we have to explain the teaching of Scripture. And every time we do that, we are using, yes, different propositions stated in in various structures grammatically, but with the intent of only expressing what was read in the Word. But to say you can't do that means that you can't then make any thought or form any concept. Just simply read words from the Bible without thinking Mm. thoughts, without preaching, without teaching. I mean, at some point, it becomes so irrational. The question becomes, as I think Hodge says, it's not the Bible versus creeds, thus God versus man, but rather it's Whose creed are you going to trust? That individual's particular view of the Bible, which maybe he won't put it into writing, but he's got a creed. He knows what he thinks he believes it says. Are you going to stand in the tradition of the church that has continued to develop and confront all of these various things to work out these understandings of the Scripture on matters that were so essential to the Christian faith? That's what we're looking at as the dilemma a person has because in reality, it's never going to be God versus man. It's always going to be 
which creed, even if man puts his words in there, then we are adding to what we believe the Bible teaches. And that's still a question of following which creed. The creed always subjective to the authority of Scripture. Always capable of being realigned with greater understanding according to the teaching of the Word of God. But, I mean, after so many years that that's taken place, so many exegetical studies of the various scriptures, we've moved away from saying that uh, there are certain areas that we have to constantly go back to. For example, if we do not have our creed and work in creedal theology, we talk hermeneutically about theological interpretation. What we're saying is once we've established a doctrine, we don't go back and reestablish the doctrine every time. It just is not necessary. Because if we did that, we'd never get around to our study. We would be constantly going back to have to reaffirm everything else that we think we believe and then do that study and that we would never have the time to do it. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I think the only problem that you're going to run into on that is you're going to have to assume that everybody is on the same page with you. Yes. And now if that's the case, then that's that's fine. You, know, you get up to preach a particular message on a Sunday morning and you say the word justification and everybody in your congregation uh, adheres, for example, to the Westminster Confession and you know that they believe that and they know that you believe that and so when you say justification you all know what you mean and you all agree together um, the problem that we run into is that a great portion of our church today doesn't believe that and doesn't agree with that section on justification for example and we do have to then go back and reteach some of those things to bring people up to the point where they're either going to say, yes, I believe that, or, and then at that point you're going to say, well, you're, you're, you know, subscribing to something that we all believe, and that's why it's written down that way, and that's why we believe that. Uh, or you're going to flush out the people who don't believe that, and maybe that'll give you an opportunity to help them understand what that doctrine means, or it may help them see that they don't believe the essential truths of the Christian faith on that particular point of justification. So I think that that particular aspect is exceedingly important because if once you ask the question, what do you think the Bible is teaching? Yeah, uh, the moment that you get into that. You know, if you read your Bible, you of necessity have to think about what the Bible says about something. Uh, somebody asks you, what justification mean? Who is Jesus? Well, what do those things mean to you? You're starting to confess something. It's just a differentiation between somebody who's trying to think off the top of their head, hoping they get something right, and somebody who subscribes to something that's already written down, who they've already thought through those things. So it's not that we're discounting in any way private interpretation. Uh, private interpretation is the first step in the necessary consequence of confessional Christianity. Uh, there's only one kind of Christianity that exists, and that's confessional Christianity, because the moment that you open your mouth, you have to say something. But absolutely, you know, thinking about uh, traditionalism in that way or theological traditionalism, it doesn't claim that Westminster or any other confession that's orthodox was the result of some kind of 
uh, specialized inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was the result of a majority consensus based on interpretation. Uh, and that consensus was conferred as the truth of the subject matter after that private interpretation and after that study took place. Absolutely. So, you know, it's written down so you don't have to keep going over the same information in that way every single time you say something because it would be impossible to get to what the Lord may have for that body that morning for that particular sermon if you had to explain justification to them every time you mentioned the word. And if someone was asking questions, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe the Bible teaches about salvation or justification? If your only response is, we have no creed but the Bible, well, you may have a small creed, but you do have a creed. Although it doesn't explain anything, except for that you say your creed is the Bible. And, you know, in that sense, I guess we look at the insidiousness of these arguments they make no sense whatsoever. Total irrationality. That's the thing the church must avoid at all cost, is that type of irrational thinking. You know, our attention in the show, of course, is to set forth the historical faith of the Christian church in that that system of theology, which is commonly known as Calvinism, is the theology that we see, even in its seed form, before it had the nickname of Calvin. But, today we commonly refer to it as Calvinistic theology, or the broader would be Reformed theology. Although, with Reformed theology, you can have various classifications, because you have Anglican insights into what they think the Scriptures teach, and those may vary from those who follow Calvin, and those who follow uh, the Lutherans, the Lutherans in the Reformation have variations of views between the view. And that's okay, there's areas of disagreement within them, but on the essentials we usually find that they have a strong agreement, especially among those who, of the Anglican Church, have truly maintained more of a Reformed perspective, although have graver questions about their creedal system itself and what it teaches. But I, I like what Charles Spurgeon once said when he started talking about Calvinism itself. He says, I have my own private opinion that there is no such thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless we preach what is nowadays called Calvinism. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace. Unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah. Nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the special and particular redemption of his elect and chosen people which Christ wrought out upon the cross. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets all saints fall away after they are called. Dr. Matt, it's our contention that any compromise with this historical faith as we have seen it developed in more of a systematic formulation, is going to be a step toward humanism, toward man influences or systemizing of synthetic teachings that are outside of the Scripture being brought into union with the Scripture. It's highly probable that the impoverishing of the 20th and 21st century church in our society is due to the fact that the doctrines of Calvinism have not been preached and carried out in practice both in church and among 
the Christians who have adhered to that system of doctrine, which is why we're talking about the necessity in our series, Calvinism Today, of confronting both historically and confronting currently in our modern times these teachings that have moved away or shifted from their historical base, which was taught in those time periods where we see greater gifts of given to insight in the church in many ways, but taking us back to the teaching of the scripture in its most plainest and simplest form. Uh, Dr. Matt, give us your thoughts on that very thing. Well, there is, coming from Spurgeon's quote that you just gave, there is what we call Calvinism, and then there are simply varying degrees of unbelief from that. So unbelief from the gospel, Calvinism being just a a nickname for the gospel in that way, unbelief moves people towards humanism simply because they cease to believe the gospel and they decide willingly in some way to believe something else, regularly theirs or somebody else's own doctrinal invention. So when you're dealing with the gospel, there is only one gospel. And the question is whether we adhere to that gospel or we in some way are in some kind of varying degree of unbelief towards that gospel, which is the whole impoverishing of the 20th and 21st century church. Uh, It is exactly as you said, due to the fact that the doctrines of the gospel have not been preached and carried out uh, in churches as they should be. Uh, many of the time being forgotten, not known, not dealt with uh, in the education of many of the preachers that stand behind the pulpits to preach the gospel that they're supposed to be preaching. I think one of the um, most personal examples that I have is uh, sitting in seminary and having the Ten Commandments read or stated in terms of where they were in the Bible, yet never, now this is, these are the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments in all of my seminary education, going to Bible college and then seminary afterwards, never did I have a class, never did I have a time, and never did I have a book that ever was assigned to us to explain what the Ten Commandments meant. It was one thing to know what they were, but it's something quite different to know what they mean. And I think that kind of detrimental difficulty that is plaguing our churches today is simply a a compromise away from dealing with the difficult doctrines that might be found in something like the Ten Commandments, which are some of the most basic issues to the Christian life. So. Once you get away from Calvinism, you just start dealing with varying degrees of not believing what the truth is or what God had said in the body of truth to the church. You know, Dr. Lorraine Bittner wrote this. Let me quote him. We are living in a day in which practically all of the historic churches are being attacked from within by unbelief. Many of them have already succumbed. And most invariably, the line of dissent has been from Calvinism to Arminianism, from Arminianism to liberalism, and then to Unitarianism. And the history of liberalism and Unitarianism shows that they have deteriorated into a social gospel that is too weak to sustain itself. 
We are convinced that the future of Christianity is bound up with that system of theology, historically called Calvinism. Where the God-centered principles of Calvinism have been abandoned, there has been a strong tendency downward into the depths of man-centered naturalism or secularism. Some have declared, rightly, we believe, there is no consistent stopping place between Calvinism and atheism. Let me state this clearly. What we're contending for is in our perspective of Calvinism that it is either God that is the first cause of salvation by his sovereign will or man is the cause of his salvation. It's God versus man. There are no. And that's a very simplistic way to say it. But either regeneration through the work of the Holy Spirit precedes faith or faith must precede regeneration. Both systems cannot be correct. They are diametrically opposed to each other. Dr. Matt, I don't think that question can be made any clearer. Do you? Well, I don't think Jesus could be made any clearer than he is in John chapter 1 or John chapter 3 or John chapter 6. Um, John chapter 1, it says, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's pretty clear. Uh, In John 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And see is the word that John uses for spiritually understand or believe. Mm -hmm. So unless a man is born again first, he can't see the kingdom of God. He can't spiritually see it. Or in John 6, no man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. John 6, 44. And the interesting part Uh, Part of these verses is that if you're talking with someone who's, let's say, for example, that they don't believe the gospel and they're diametrically opposed and in some other camp and they read these verses, they'll immediately come back and start arguing with you. And it's interesting to note that when they start doing that, you haven't said anything yet. All you've done is ask them to read the verses. And at that point, they begin to get argumentative (laughs) and they get argumentative because they understand what these verses are plainly saying. You know, today it's been filtered into the church that somebody comes in, they sit in the pew, they listen to the preaching. It's a salvation message. They hear the scriptures. They begin to think about it and they decide want to follow Jesus, so they decide to follow him, and then Jesus saves them. Well, Jesus gives the exact opposite as to the common understanding of what people think today. He said, unless a man is born again, he can't spiritually understand the things of the kingdom. So the, the Holy Spirit has to first come and regenerate the heart. So you're right in saying both systems cannot be correct. They are opposed to one another. So the question is, and it's fundamental, do you believe the gospel or don't you? And that's where things get very sticky. Absolutely. Psalm 3.8 says salvation belongs to the Lord. Well, listen, we're out of time. Dr. Matt, would you like to add any further final comments at this time? Well, I'd just like to, to highlight the word, uh, this idea. You know, every Christian must, and I highlight the word must, you must be ready to give an answer for the faith that dwells in them. And that means that you must have a ready confession of your faith. And it would do the church well to have a confession that adheres to accepted Christian truth. 
so that you're walking closer to the gospel, not away from the gospel towards atheism in some way. You know, we can say on the one hand with Luther, here I stand, I can do no other. And at the same time, as Luther said, stand on accepted Christian truths. Well, thank you for joining us on our first broadcast of Calvinism today. We ask that you will keep this ministry in your prayers and support it by telling others about the show. Dr. McMahon, Dr. Sullivan, thank you for your participation and support. Next time, we'll take up our discussion concerning Calvinism in the early church. Until then, God bless you and keep you in his grace. Are you considering seminary education? Let Whitfield Theological Seminary provide your educational needs. Whitfield offers master and doctoral degree programs through distance education in ministry, theological studies, biblical counseling, and Christian education. You can complete your studies for the ministry or other church vocations in the privacy of your home in conjunction with your local church. For students who have never been to college, check out the Bachelor Divinity Degree Program. Whitfield also offers lay study programs. Go to www.whitfield.edu for additional information. Remember, Whitfield offers classical Reformed theological education. Whitfield Theological Seminary, training a new generation of ministers around the world to disciple the nations in the theology of the Reformation. Parents, are you looking for a college to send your children to in the near future? Hi, I'm Dr. Randall Talbot, the Executive Vice President and Academic Dean of Whitfield College. Let me share with you why I think you should consider Whitfield College. First, Whitfield brings a Christian college education home to you. We are a distant learning online institution. Second, Whitfield provides a biblical worldview college education. Third, affordability. Because we are a distance learning institution, we can provide a high academic education that you can afford. The average tuition for most online colleges is $300 or more per credit hour. At Whitfield, we charge $80 per credit hour. Fourth, Graduates from Whitfield College are highly educated in the majors that we provide. We have graduates that have entered graduate schools all across the country in various different fields. Institutions like the University of Massachusetts of North Dartmouth, Liberty University Law School, and various seminaries. If you would like further information, you may visit the Whitfield College website at whitfieldcollege.com. Dot org, or you may call the college offices at 863-683-7899. I am looking forward to hearing from you. A Puritan's Mind is a website dedicated to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God. Located at www.apuritansmind.com. Its purpose is to help those visitors, over 50 million since 1998, to enjoy God and His gracious gospel of redemption through Jesus Christ. It's called a Puritan's Mind because it houses one of the largest selections of writings from the 17th century, covering Christian authors such as Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, Jeremiah Burroughs, and a whole host of Westminster ministers of the Puritan age. But that's not all. 
There are sections on the website on church history, historical theology, and doctrinal aspects covering justification, the doctrines of grace, family worship, Christian stewardship, and much, much more. A Puritan's mind has even reached out over into the Reformed book market with Puritan publications. We have published over a dozen works, including The Covenant of God by Thomas Blake, and one of the most popular introductions to covenant theology called A Simple Overview of Covenant Theology by Dr. Matthew McMahon. All works are available in digital formats as well. You can even acquire an all-in-one special DVD that contains many out-of-fruit works, sermons, and books from the Puritans and Reformers. Visit us at www.apuritansmind.com for more information and do all to the glory of God. You've been listening to Whitfield Radio. Whitfield Radio is a division of Whitfield College and Theological Seminary. Music is provided by our friend, Dr. Phil Kagey, and we encourage you to visit his website at philkagey.com, P-H-I-L-K-E-A-G-G-Y dot com. This is Dr. Bill Sullivan saying thank you for joining us and check out our website for the next scheduled show. Our website is whitfieldmedia.com W-H-I-T-E-F-I-E-L-D-M-E-D-I-A dot com whitfieldmedia.com Cover me, clothing your